Crispus lives in me. I believe. I release the children through gate four. And I ask us to consider what does it mean that Christmas lives in me? What does that mean? And, and in order for us to truly answer that question, we have, to, we have to answer the question, what is the true meaning of Christmas? And the true meaning of Christmas, I believe, is found best in that verse that so many of us know so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal, everlasting life. For God so loved the, the world that he, he gave his one and only son. And we think about that at Christmas. But, but does Christmas live in you? Do you believe? As Michelle, amen, Julia. As Michelle and Deb sing that and say, I believe, and you sing those words along, is it true of you? And if it is, what difference has it made in your life? We're looking at this inescapable truth in our text today that Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's the king of the Jews. And our big idea today will be that, that the king was a rejected gift, that God so loved the world that he gave, and, and Jesus is this gift that came to the earth, and, and yet he was a gift that was rejected and still is today. We look at these verses and if you were to do a search for the words King of the Jews, the first, the first place that appears in Scripture is, is in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, when the Magi come. And the Magi come to Herod and they say, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we want to worship him. And Herod said, oh man, go find him and then come back and tell me because I want to worship him too. Fortunately, the Magi listened to God instead of to Herod, right? Because he had no intention of worshiping the king of the Jews. He thought he was king of the Jews. The next time that you find it in Scripture is in all of the Gospels, but it comes in the crucifixion account. It comes in the, the Passion Week when, when Pilate declares that the charge against Jesus is the king, that he said he was the king of the Jews. The king, a rejected gift. Our text is found in Mark chapter 15, and I'd like to read that for you. It's a text that we normally read at Easter, but reading it at this time of year brings great significance. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin came, made their plans, and bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? Don't you see how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the, pr the people had requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release 
to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed him over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But all the louder, they cried, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns, and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. When they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see which each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he could not save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then some of those standing near this, they said, he listened, he's calling to Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. God, I thank you for your word. Even as I read it, now for the third time in a service, I'm still so completely overwhelmed 
with what you endured for us, Lord Jesus. Help us see the truth that you would have us see this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. Our King, and as we look at this and we look at our passage today, we'll see four different things about this gift of Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave. It's a gift of Christmas. And the gift is Jesus. And the first thing we see is that the gift was handed over. The gift was handed over. And three times in our passage we'll see that, that, that the, the chief priests, the elders, they handed him over to Pilate. And then we see that, that, that Pilate recognizes it was out of selfish ambition that they did that. But then we'll see that, that Pilate hands him over as well and hands him over to the crowd. It's hard to understand the setting for us. As I said, we, we look back on this day and we see it as such a significant day, which it was, but it's hard for us to see how in the culture, for many of the people who were there, it was just another day. It was just another man being tried. It was just another man being crucified. For, for many people, it was just another day. The first thing that we see is that the Sanhedrin, the whole Sanhedrin came together and made their plans. You'll remember from Pastor Tim's message from last week that the charge that was brought against him by the high priest as the high priest rendered his robe was that, that, that of blasphemy. Jesus had claimed to be God, blasphemy. And, and it's so important to remember that, that one of the things that holds Jewish people together is monotheism. There is one God the Lord your God is one, and you will worship the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your strength, and that holds the Jewish people. And we need to understand that, and so for Jesus to claim to be God, it was blasphemy, but they knew and understood if they brought a charge of blasphemy to the Roman government, the Roman government would not care about blasphemy. Because one of the things, <coughs> excuse me, that caused the greatest antagonism between the Romans and the Jews were the idea of one God and many gods. <coughs> In a polytheistic society, this group of people who were so strongly monotheistic. Joyce, I'm going to need a glass of water in order to carry on. But we're going to push through. Amen? All right. So, we see that they handed him over to Pilate. But as they handed him over, they had made their plans. And their plans were not to highlight the fact that he had committed blasphemy, but rather to highlight the fact that he was committing treason. He was claiming to be a king. And that's not a stretch because as he claimed to be Messiah, he was claiming to be the king. And so they brought him to Pilate and that's why the very first question that Pilate asks, according to Mark, is, are you the king of the Jews? It's because that's the accusation that they brought. We try to understand Pilate and I think many of us want to have him be glamorized in some way. 
And I think we all want to know that he somehow turned, that, that, you know, his wife having knowledge and all these things. But the truth is, and the more I study this, the more I believe that he was just a, an evil man. And so, um, talk amongst yourselves for a minute here, okay? All right. This is the way we do things when we're really organized. And Thank you. Thank you, Joyce. Yes, now we can go. Michael Card in his book on Mark uh, has a wonderful passage here that I'd like to read for you. And he talks about Pilate in a way that helps us understand him much better. The most important background, um, well, I'm going to start a little sooner. We know a lot about Pontius Pilate. Even secular historians, such as Philo of Alexandria, paint a negative uh, portrait of him. He was assigned to be a prefect, military commander, in the region in A.D. 26. Though his residence was on the coast of the Mediterranean at Caesarea in one of Herod's empty palaces, Pilate came to Jerusalem to be in residence during the festivals when trouble was most likely to occur. occur. The most important piece of background in understanding Pilate's mindset is how he obtained his position, or even more to the point, through whom he attained it. His name was Sejanus. Next to Tiberius himself, he was the most powerful man in Rome. In AD 31, he was appointed consul, virtually a co-ruler with the emperor. On October 18th of that same year, it was discovered that he had been plotting against Tiberius, planning a takeover. Within hours, he was executed. Sejanus had been well known for his anti-Semitic policies, and upon his death, Tiberius, the Caesar, ordered hostilities against the Jews will cease. This is a vital piece of the puzzle for understanding Pilate. Pilate is now standing before the most influential men in Jerusalem. He loathes them and all they stand for. He sees through their duplicity and jealousy, yet in order to keep his position, he must be seen as unbiased and fair. Otherwise, he will come under the scrutiny of Tiberius, a scrutiny that has increased exponentially since the Sejanus affair. Pilate would in fact be recalled to Rome in A.D. 36 to answer for atrocities committed against the Samaritans. While he was on his way to stand trial, Tiberius died and Pilate simply disappeared. So this is Pilate. Pilate is a man who loathes the Jewish people. He wants nothing to do with them. As a matter of fact, he has to come from his his palace, which is right on the, the Mediterranean Sea, and seeing the ruins, I can only imagine what it actually looked like. I mean, it was just opulent, and so he had to leave that palace in order to come to Jerusalem during the festivals, only because that's when there would probably be uprisings. He, he has no value for their practices, no value for their traditions. He just is put off by them completely. So when they bring this man and say that he's claiming to be king of the Jews, 
There's not any part of him, I don't believe, that has any sort of compassion towards the Jewish people. If three years after the crucifixion of Christ, he's coming under trial for his atrocities to the Samaritans, it's not like his encounter with Christ changed him. The Jewish leaders handed Jesus over to Pilate out of self-interest. Pilate knew they were jealous of Jesus. They were, they were wondering what he was about. They, they were threatened by him. They did not believe, you see, that he could possibly be the Messiah. What good could come from Nazareth? It just was so unthinkable that that's how God would make himself known. And again, we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we, we don't move too quickly away from realizing that if we were in the same position, we might have thought the same things. But what's most interesting is that even though Pilate is all put off that they handed him over for self-interests, ultimately that's what Pilate did as well. It was out of self-interest that he handed him over to be crucified. He wanted to satisfy the crowd. He wanted to maintain his position. It was out of self-interest that he handed Jesus over. And it occurs to me that in the account of, of, the, uh, of the trial here, that everyone who hands Jesus over, hands him over out of self-interest, which is so ironic. Because you see, the best thing, if, I, if I'm interested in myself, the best thing I can do is grab on to Jesus. It's absolutely the best thing for me is to grab on to Jesus. Yet, in our sinful state, we believe that, that our best self-interest is served by putting Jesus off and handing him over. So a question, are there any ways in which I've handed over the gift? Are there any ways in my life in which I've, I've handed Jesus over that, that maybe it just seems too unbelievable that he could be who he says he is, that I can't accept who he is? If I handed him over out of any sort of self-interest, are there any aspects of who he is that I've just put aside because I've been more interested in what I need and what I've defined him to be? The second thing we see is that the gift was mocked. The gift was mocked. In this paragraph, as we read this, the soldiers mocking Jesus, it's always this unusual thing that I think of them coming and putting a robe and a crown and bowing down to him and calling him king. And I'm, I'm trying to understand what in the world does that mean? Michael Card has done some research on that. And I want to read what he's found out. And it's, if true, it's, it's quite fascinating. Jesus is led into the Praetor's residence known as the Praetorium. Okay, so if you ever wondered what the Praetorium is, it's the place where the Praetorium, where the Praetor is. Okay, so the Praetorium is where the Praetor is. Isn't that helpful information? And Praetor is the ruler, in this case, Pilate. So when he was in Caesarea, that would have been the Praetorium. Now as he comes to Jerusalem, the place where he is, is the Praetorium. And so he's led into the Praetor's residence, the Praetorium. Its location is still open to question. It might have been Herod's palace, which was a distance away, or it may have been close uh, to the Tower of David. Um, many, many 
scholars believe it was located in Antonio Fortress, which overlooks the Temple Mount. So it's one of those two places. And again, you say, well, why don't we know? Well, remember that for a lot of people, it was just another day. If we were there, we would have marked it because it's significant for us. The Roman soldiers we met in Jerusalem are not from Palestine. They are members of the Italian cohort. By far, the majority of references to the relationship between Roman soldiers and Jewish citizens are negative. The two groups were constantly antagonizing each other. The soldiers had great disdain for Jewish customs and sensibilities. Riots were frequently caused by their insensitivity to the many prohibitions of Jewish culture. To the soldiers, tormenting Jesus is merely an event to break up the monotony of the day. Having heard the charges, they torture him according to a popular board game from the ancient world known as Kings. Pavement stones from all over the empire still display the checkerboard design which the soldiers had um, scratched into the stones. A piece was moved around the board according to the roll of the dice. At various stages, it was robed, then crowned, and finally, when it arrived at proper square, the winner would declare king. As Jesus becomes their plaything, the soldiers robe him with one of their red military cloaks designed to hide any telltale signs of blood. Next, they crown him. Roman emperors wore vegetative crowns of laurel or withered celery. Roman, uh, the, the cruel crown fashioned by these soldiers is a leafy one as well, only it contains thorns. The custom was that crucified criminals would then be stripped and put on the cross. For now, Mark tells us the soldiers put Jesus' clothes back on him as they heard him to the place of crucifixion. So it brings clarity to this paragraph, and we understand that, if true, that they found Jesus and thought, let's just use him as a plaything. Let's just pretend he's a piece in the game that we usually play. It'll make it more fun. And they begin to mock him, and they put a, 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 a crown on him. They put a, a robe on him. They, they slap him with a stick, and they spit on him. And then they bow down and pretend, give him mock worship. I have a hard time reading this passage in it where it says, falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. I have such a hard time reading that and not immediately thinking of Philippians chapter 2 where it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And I think, what about these, these men? These men who, who did this to Jesus, at, at some point in time, they will kneel before Jesus. They will kneel before him, and I will imagine they come into his presence, and they're just like, because now they're seeing Jesus in his glory, in his holiness, in his love, in his mercy, in his grace, and, and all that he is, and, and his deity, and they'll be bowing down before him, and they will truly be bowing down. And I wonder, will they look up and see the face that they spit in? Will they, will they see the crown? Remembering that they had placed it, will they see the marks? Will they, 
Will they be reminded? Will I? Will I be reminded of the times that my worship has been less than genuine? Will I be reminded when my worship was actually mocking Jesus rather than, than amazingly worshiping and bowing down before his deity, rather bowing down expecting him to do things for me, designing who he should be? Are there any ways in which I've mocked the gift? The next thing we consider is that the gift of was, was of less value than the wrapping. And where I see that is in verse 24. They crucified him. Dividing up their clothes, they cast lots to see which each would get. Crucifixion was so commonplace at this point in time, and even more so for those to whom Mark was written. Mark was written to a group of people in Rome at a time when persecution was increasing There's record of a time when there were so many crucifixions happening that they ran out of wood to make crosses. Crucifixion was so common. Part of the reason that Mark doesn't go into the detail is because his audience would have understood crucifixion perfectly. Can you imagine going to downtown Lake Geneva and you walk along and there's all these crosses there, all with bodies on them in various states of decay, in various states of death. Some of them lit on fire so that you can see where you're going. Countless, all along the road. It had become so commonplace that the people who were on the cross weren't even considered to be people, and it was no different with Jesus. They placed him on the cross, they crucified him, and while it was going on, they took his garment and said, well, this blood-stained garment is worth something. He's not, but this is. And so they took that which wrapped my Jesus and gave that greater value than Jesus himself. And I wonder how that happens for us. How do we get so enamored by the wrappings and the trappings of Christmas and the wrappings and the trappings of Christianity How do we get so excited about the things that Jesus is wrapped in that we somehow miss the core of who he is and all that he stands for? Christmas lives in me. Jesus lives in me. I believe that. But what does that mean? And what does Christianity involve? We're told not to talk about death and and sin and hell and guilt and shame, the wrath of God. These are all things we don't talk about. We talk about the love of God because we want the wrappings. We want to make sure that that you understand that God loves you no matter what. And, And there's truth to that. God does love you. But God loves you so much that he doesn't want you to stay where you are. 
And that's why he brought Jesus. And listen, you can't talk about the cross without talking about death and hell and sin and guilt and shame and the wrath of God. Because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for my sin and yours. And you see, the beautiful truth of Christmas is that you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And the beautiful truth of Jesus is that he's our savior. And listen, if you don't know that, if you haven't understood it, listen, every sin you committed has earned the wrath of God. The wrath of God. And listen, you will stand before God and give an account and you will stand before him and you will pay the penalty for your sin and the penalty for sin is death. And the wrath of God will be poured out on you unless you have accepted the gift that he has offered. And that gift is his son, Jesus Christ, who has come and paid the penalty for your sin. All you need to do is ask him that you could be forgiven. You turn to him and you say, I know, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've sinned against you, God, but I ask that you'd forgive me. And then the wrath of God against your sin is poured out on Jesus and the righteousness of Christ is credited to your account. That is the, that is the beauty of the gift and the wrappings around that are of no value without that. Paul, at the end of his life in 2 Timothy, writes to Timothy, the one who he has mentored and the one who he loves, and he says, join with me. And we think about that, and we think about joining with Paul and how incredible it would be to join with Paul and to join with Jesus and, and join with me. But listen to the rest of it. Join with me in suffering for the gospel. Join with me in suffering for the gospel. Listen, We've got all sorts of things waiting for us. Jesus has promised, God has promised through Jesus eternal life. God has promised freedom from the presence of sin. He has promised abundant life. He has promised that there will be no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more tears. All promised for us, and it's all waiting for us in heaven. Not here. Here, what's waiting for us is to suffer. Isn't that an encouraging message? It is. It is because we get to do this. It's been granted to us. And it doesn't mean that we don't have blessings that are part of the already aspect of our, of our salvation. But the not yet part is what we hope for. And what we know is waiting for us. So don't get so involved in the wrapping that you miss the value of the gift. And are there any ways that I've valued the wrapping above the gift? Finally, I see that the gift's beauty is seen in its selfless love. Selfless love. And the centurion is the one who declares that Jesus truly must have been the Son of God. And, and he does that. And, and you think of this centurion, and the centurion is this hardened Roman, Roman um, soldier who had a hundred people under him. 
probably the hundred who were assigned to, to carry out the crucifixion of Jesus. And they've walked along the whole way with him. And maybe he's got blood splattered on him that belongs to Jesus. And, and he's walked this whole way. And at the end of it all, he looks up and he says, this was the son of God. And what is it that causes him to believe that this was the son of God? Was it because he saw him born? No. Was it because he saw him raised from the dead? No. It was because he saw how he died. When he saw how Jesus died, he was able to declare that he was the son of God. That's how important this is. How did Jesus die? So many different spots here we see. He listened to taunting, but he didn't didn't answer back. (coughs) Even the... Even the teachers of the law came and said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. And the unbelievable truth in that sentence, he saved others, but he can't save himself. You see, the truth is, if he saves himself, he can't save anyone else. So it's absolutely true that he can't save himself if he is to save others. Come down, If you come down, we'll see and we believe. For those of us who know Christ, we realize and understand that believing is seeing. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. We walk by faith and not by sight. He turned away the wine because he promised that he wouldn't drink it again until he drinks it with us in glory. The centurion watched him die. He saw an innocent man pay the penalty for a guilty person. Me. You. He saw darkness come over the whole land. A darkness that could be felt. And this isn't the the storm that brought darkness. We're told that the sun stopped shining. This is a darkness that could be felt. It was a darkness that was silent. At noon, the sun sun stopped shining and it was dark for three hours. And then there was a cry from the cross. And I wonder if it was that cry that most convinced the centurion. Because The very nature of crucifixion was to take the life out of someone and the breath out of someone so that you'd die from asphyxiation. And the last thing that a person who would be crucifying would have is a breath that would be strong enough to cry out loudly and then breathe the last. And what was it that our Jesus cried out? It's finished! And then he died and breathed his last. And then the light came back. Have you seen the beauty of the gift? Have you seen his selfless love? Have you seen the sacrifice that he's made? As you read this text, as you think about this text, and we've only covered a part of it, do you see the deep love of Jesus? The deep love of God? reaching to you, but reaching to you not so that you can stay where you are, 
but reaching to you so you could be set free from where you are. Have I seen the gift's beauty as demonstrated in his selfless love, and have I done what I need to accept the gift? Oh, I pray you have. I pray that you've trusted Jesus as your Savior. I pray that you believe and that you know. Does Christmas live in you, in me? Pilate asked the crowd, what shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? I'll ask you, what will you do then with the one I tell you is king of the Jews? What will you do with this king of Christmas? Will you hand him over? Will you mock him? Will you value more what you think he can do for you? Or will you see the depth of his beauty? Oh God, for each of us as we answer that question, overwhelm us with a sense of of your love, of your justice, of your righteousness, of your goodness. Lord, you know each person in this room. You know each heart in this room. If there's any who does not yet believe, Lord, God, Father, draw them to yourself today. For those of us who do, Lord, have we bowed in mock homage to you in any way? Oh, search our hearts. See if there's any way we've handed you over or not valued you. Search us, Lord, that we may be ambassadors for you. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Could I ask you to stand and hear God's good word for you? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. May you know the joy, the love, the hope, and the peace of Christmas. I release you to a week of work, witness, and worship, reminding you that the name of Christ is right on the edge of everybody's lips right now. When they say happy holidays, you respond with? And you follow that up with, do you know my Jesus? Can you do that? Oh, that's a little scary. We'll do the Merry Christmas thing, but okay, let's go. Amen. God bless you.